Galatians chapter 6. And with the Lord's help and blessing, we'll finish this epistle and our study of it today. Galatians chapter 6. I sent a preparatory email to you yesterday afternoon, and I asked a question, what might be the greatest verse in Galatians 6, and I hope you can easily find it. We want to spend our time with that verse today, the Lord willing. But let's review what the rest of the chapter has to tell us. I read to you the first five verses. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. We covered these five verses last Lord's Day. These five verses are the Apostle Paul closing out this epistle, teaching the saints in Galatia how they ought to relate to one another. We see here in the third verse that we aren't to think very highly of ourselves because we are nothing. And if we think highly of ourselves when we are nothing, then we have not only lied to ourselves, we have believed that lie. We have deceived ourselves. The way that you can prove that you don't think too highly of yourself is to serve others. It's very simple. If you like to sit in your room, sit in your house, we can call it your cave, where you like to be a cave dweller and stay there and keep your little routine, then it shows us that you're thinking too highly of yourself. Because the reason you do that is because you are more important than others. If you felt that others were more important than you, if you believed that, if you were convinced of that, you would get out of your cave and go do something for others. And so the Apostle teaches us in every epistle he ever wrote. Because it's the true measure of Christianity that is our love of others. And we prove it by what we do for others. Now, the evidence in this passage is harder than preparing a meal for someone. It's harder than attending a Bible quiz to encourage our quizzers. It's finding a man overtaken in a fault and restoring him with a meek spirit. It's verse 1 of this passage. If a man's overtaken in a fault, spiritual members of the church are to go and restore that brother. And that's how a church is to function together. The church of the New Testament has its duties defined very carefully in the Bible. And if every man does their duty, a church can be a wonderful thing. It can be a taste of heaven on earth. And the rule is given in the first verse of how we are to bear one another's burdens. We can bear each other's burdens in many other ways, but a principal way is to identify error in our brothers and to correct it meekly, remembering that you are correcting a mote in their eye while you are still removing, by heavy crane work, the beam in your own eye. That's the spirit of meekness, knowing that you can be tempted yourself and fall just as easily into a fault as any other brother. It goes on to say that every man should prove his own work. 
Every man should prove the character and conduct of your life by the Word of God so that you can have rejoicing in yourself and not in another. You rejoice in another when you let their praise and their accolades and their approval convince you that you're doing okay. You rejoice in another when you see them fail and because you have not failed the same time at the same way, you think yourself better than them. That's when you have rejoicing in another and that's all false rejoicing. When someone else fails and you don't and you look down on them, that's a pretense, that's a deception that you are doing well. That fourth verse is teaching us to measure ourselves by the Word of God, measure ourselves by God's standard, and then we can rejoice in ourselves and not another. We do not need any crutch of public opinion. We do not need any crutch of others' failures to help us along because we have examined ourselves and measured ourselves by the inflexible standard of God's holy Word. And that's what we are to do. And every for every man shall bear his own burden. God is not going to give you easy access to heaven because others think highly of you. God is not going to give you easy access to heaven because you may not have failed in ways that they have failed. Every man shall bear his own burden. You will give an account for your life before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the first five verses. Verse 6. Let him that is taught in the Word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. This verse was a reminder to the saints at Galatia and thus to us that we should support the man of God who teaches us the Word of God in all good things so that he has bread to eat, a bed to sleep in, and a roof over his head and clothes on his back so that he can give himself wholly to reading, prayer, the Word of God, and teaching the people of God. It is an exchange. In our society where we believe in the strict division of labor, we all understand the trade that takes place between those who do certain things and we who do other things. And we trade our expertise for their expertise. And so this trade is carnal things for spiritual things. Church members are to support the man who teaches them the Word of God. Verse 7 through 10. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. These verses are teaching us in our relationship to the world and how we are to live in this world. Verse 7 is a warning. Be not deceived. There is a temptation for the world, the world's religions, and your own heart to lie to you. When it says be not deceived, that means there is an effort to lie on this point. God is not mocked. You cannot trick God, hide from God, or evade God. God is no respecter of persons and doesn't care who you are, who your ancestors are, what hardship you've endured, or what things you've accomplished in your life. All of it's meaningless to Him. He is going to measure you by the inflexible standard of His Word. And you better be measuring yourself by that Word. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. 
If you put wheat into the ground, you get wheat out of the ground. If you are a lazy, carnal, foolish Christian, God is going to judge you. If you sow to your flesh and all you live for is your job, your business, and other worthless things, you are going to reap corruption because you are showing the evidence of an unsaved person. But if you sow to the Spirit, you love the people of God, you love the Word of God, you love serving God, you love praising God and thanking God, you love to confess your sins, and you hate this world, you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap life everlasting because that's the evidence of a child of God. This is the Word of the Lord to us this morning. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. You cannot get away sowing to the flesh and think you're going to go to heaven. You say, but aren't there some exceptions? Aren't there some carnal Christians? Yes, there are some exceptions, and there are some carnal Christians. But I haven't found in the 23rd chapter of Revelation your name as being one of them. For all I can tell, there is no 23rd chapter to the book of Revelation. From all I can tell, from Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, you are on your way to hell fire if you sow to the flesh. If all you care about is what you wear, what you drive, who you're married what your address is, what your job is, having pleasure, taking recreation, taking ease, if all that's important to you, you're on your way to hell. If you sow to the Spirit and you would give up any or all of those things in order to have more of Christ, you're on your way to heaven. It's verse 7 of chapter 6. And if you think that there is any other doctrine with any other emphasis than what I just declared to you, you have deceived yourself You are mocking God. Verse 8. I've already covered it. Verse 9. The apostle exhorts them not to be tired. Not to give up. Not to quit. And let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. The Christian life is a long-distance race. For those that are memorizing Hebrews 12, you're going to encounter that race. We have a cloud of witnesses watching us run our race. That cloud of witnesses are all the saints that have gone before us. They're sitting in the grandstand because they're in heaven, the spirits of just men made perfect, and they're watching us run our race. The Christian life is a long-distance race. We wish it were a sprint. We wish we could come into church, have someone select the right songs, Everyone around us sing at the top of their lungs. The pastor preach an eloquent, rousing sermon. And we can sprint for the next two hours in our love of Christ. But the Christian life is a long-distance race. It's running for 168 hours a week. It's putting one foot in front of the other when you are tired and you would like to quit. You would like to be a little child and ask for a drink of water. You would like to go over and sit in the bleachers for a while. But we keep running. And as we run, and as we ask the Lord for grace and strength and mercy while we run, He provides all the strength day by day that we need to keep on running. It's a long distance race. And so He says, let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. We will get to the finish line. Everyone who has ever run any race including a marathon, 
including ultramarathons. No matter at what point they thought, I will never get to the end, if they kept putting one foot in front of the other, they get to the end. And in due season, at the right time, we shall reap what we've sown. And if you are running your race for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the prize of the high calling of God, which is the only reason to ever live, if you're not living for that, I have a piece of equipment made by Smith & Wesson that you can take yourself out of your misery this afternoon. There is only one reason to live, and it's to run your race for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And so we have the ninth verse. The tenth verse says, As we have therefore, because of that, whenever there's an opportunity, let us do good unto all men. Let us be servants. Not only those in here, but those out there. Let us be servants, but we do put a priority on our service. Those in here get our best efforts. Those in here get the cash off the top. Those in here get our most fervent spirits and emotions and our time. As we have opportunity, therefore, let us do good unto all men. The lesson here is this simple. Don't lie to yourself. It's what you do every day that is the evidence of where you're going to go when you die. If what you do every day is earthly oriented and you oriented, you're going to hell. And that's where you belong. That's where I belong. If we serve others, as this 10th verse is exhorting us to do with a therefore because of what he's teaching, if we serve others out of love of Christ and especially the household of faith, we serve them just because. And what's the just because? Because they are the children of God. Not because we like them more necessarily. Not because we're more compatible with them in other areas. But because they're the children of God. Let us do good, and especially to the household of faith. And that is sowing to the Spirit. And those that sow to the Spirit shall what? Shall reap everlasting life. Brethren, this is the word of the Lord. You say it's too hard. It's too hard. There's a back door to this building. And again, I have a piece of equipment I can loan you. It's not too hard. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Anyone who ever puts themselves in the yoke of Christ finds out how light it is. It's only when you stand looking at it, debating whether you want to play with the world or put it on, that it looks heavy. Once you get it on and start moving, it's very light. Because He upholds you by His Spirit. Put it on. Let's love the Lord Jesus Christ. The warning here is very sober. It should be very sober. Verse 11. Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. You Galatians, I want you to know how much I love you. I wrote your epistle myself. Just for your exercise, look at Romans chapter 16. And let me show you how that that was unusual for Paul. Paul said to the Galatians, Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. When they got to the bottom of this epistle, remember, they didn't have word processors. It wasn't Tertius at a keyboard. It wasn't Paul at a keyboard. They had a, they had a quill or a feather or something, or some writing utensil in which they wrote. And they were used to seeing an epistle in one form of handwriting, and then at the end there would be one sentence in another form of handwriting, And it would be Brother Paul's. 
Well, this whole epistle was in one handwriting because Paul had written the whole thing out of personal affection for the Galatians. Romans chapter 16, verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. And then in verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Who wrote that verse? Paul did. That's Paul's salutation. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I'll remind you, some of you know this so well, you could quote the verses to me, I'm sure. And I'm sorry, but I want everyone in here to know the whole Bible. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul did not write his own epistles. He had secretaries and transcribers who would write down what he told them to write. Tertius wrote the epistle to the Romans. Paul added his salutation, and so it was. And there's other places I could turn you, but let's look at 2 Thessalonians 3. Verse 16, Paul's closing out this epistle. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. When we use those words, we are not using vain words. We're using inspired words when we say the Lord be with you. Verse 17, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, the Holy Spirit chose to tell us that. Other men wrote Paul's epistles. He would dictate them, and they would write them down. When when he got to the end of the epistle, he'd ask for the pen, and he would sign his salutation, which was his token in every epistle that he wrote. And what is his token? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And yes, he wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. Come back to Galatians chapter 6. It's amazing what men will debate and what they want to write books about. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 11. So he says, you see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. Instead of just a salutation, he wrote the whole thing himself, showing his affection, showing his concern, showing his worry about these churches in Galatia and the saints in them. Verse 12. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. Only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. The apostle has dealt for five chapters with the heresy. The heresy that was being taught in churches that he had started. The heresy being you had to be circumcised like Moses required and you had to keep parts of the law of Moses in order to be saved. These false teachers out of Jerusalem were corrupting the churches that Paul had started. And so he says about them here as he wraps up his epistle, As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. These men that are teaching circumcision in your churches, their ambition is to make a show in the flesh. They want to look good in the eyes of the world. They want to look good in the eyes of ritualistic religion. They do not care about Christ or the truth of the gospel. And if I were to be to tell you the whole truth, Paul writes, the only reason they teach circumcision is because they want to avoid persecution. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. Their only motive, their goal, 
And what they're doing is to look good and have a good reputation before others. They do not care about the truth. It's to make a fair show. It's not love of the truth. It's not love of the gospel driving them. It's to make a fair show to other men who are going to measure them by the standard of circumcision. And the other reason they do it is because they don't want to get persecuted for the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me explain. Jews hated Christians because Christians were monotheistic, meaning they had one God. And it was the God of the Old Testament, which the Jews considered their God. But Christians said that Jesus of Nazareth, whom the Jews had crucified, was the promised Messiah of the Jews' Old Testament scriptures. That didn't settle well, as you can imagine. Christians taught that that Jesus of Nazareth, crucified by the Jews, had risen from the dead and was seated at God's right hand and was coming in judgment not only on their nation, but at the end of the end of time to judge the whole world. They hated Christians. Christians treated the law as a second-class part of the Bible, which it is and which it was. Jews didn't like that. You could make peace with the Jews if, as a Gentile, you would subject yourself to the cosmetic surgery that the Jews were used to. Whenever a Jew, whenever a Gentile, excuse me, whenever a Gentile would humble himself to undergo having his foreskin cut off, in a religious rite, the Jews would accept that. And so it would, it would take away the persecution of Christians by Jews as long as those Christians were exalting circumcision high enough to make it a requirement. And so these men required circumcision in order to avoid the persecution of the Jews. The Jewish religion was an accepted religion in the Roman Empire most of the time. And so if you were circumcised, and so you looked like a Jew in that respect, then the Romans were happy with you most of the time. And so to preach circumcision in addition to Christ took away the persecution of the cross. If you only preach Jesus Christ, guess what? Both parties hated you. The Jews hated you because you're preaching Jesus of Nazareth, the fulfillment of their scriptures, and the New Testament being superior to the Old, and their way of worship having been done away. They didn't like that. If you preach Jesus Christ crucified, the Romans didn't like you because you were constantly talking about a new king named Jesus. So no one liked you. But if you got circumcised so that you fit into their religious almanac, you had deliverance from both parties most of the time. These false teachers only wanted to make a fair show in the flesh. Holding your finger at Galatians chapter 6, look at Colossians 2 that was read to us. Colossians chapter 2. I'll read just one verse to you again. It's the last verse, verse 23. This is speaking about the same kind of men trying to put the saints at Colossae back under the rules of Moses. How do we know that? Because of the handwriting of ordinances that was against us in verse 14, and because of the meat, the drink, and the holy days, and the Sabbath days of verse 16. Paul had to deal with this enemy everywhere he turned. Judaizers trying to take Christians back under the Old Testament. 
Here's what he says about these false teachers in verse 23. Which things? Their touch not, taste not, handle not rules. No, you can't touch that. No, you can't eat that. No, you can't drink that. All these can't do that rules. Which things? All those rules. Which things have indeed a show? Oh, thank you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for letting the Bible be a commentary on the Bible. They make a fair show in the flesh. Here's the show. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh? Paul said, true religion is going to satisfy the flesh. I mean, the body. You're going to be able to eat a pepperoni pizza. These false teachers say you can't eat a pepperoni pizza. You can't touch it, and if you touch it, you're going to perish because you've broken the law. You're going to go to hell if you touch that. And he says, when you have a bunch of rules like that, men respect you because it... Foolish men, worldly men, respect you because it has a show of wisdom in will worship. I can deny myself and not eat pizza. I am holy. It has a show of wisdom in humility. Look at how humble I am to the Word of God instead of thinking that I can have pizza and enjoy it. And that's what that verse is speaking of. They made a show by being extra disciplined. Now, brethren, we have religions today that make a show. The Catholic Church denies marriage, denies meat, forbids meat, requires the vow of celibacy, and it's all a show of humility and will worship and self-denial when God didn't require it. The first requirement God gives of a pastor is that he be the husband of one wife. Isn't that amazing? Peter had a wife. The Lord healed her mother. Back to Galatians 6. These false teachers requiring rituals, requiring circumcision, all they were doing was to make a fair show in the flesh. They wanted to appear a certain way. And there are men today, they want to appear in public with their backward collars. There are women that appear in, with their habits on their heads, nuns of the Church of Rome, and others, they want to show, they make a show of their ability at self-denial and humility and denying their body when the Lord did not require that. Brethren, we are under the law of liberty. You want to get married? Get married. You want to eat a Big Mac on Friday afternoon? Eat it. Eat another one for me. Thank you, Lord. What a deliverance. But do you know what? Men love the monastic approach to religion. Many religious people would rather see an ultra-conservative life of self-denial because they think they're earning pleasure with God and it has a show to other men when the gospel comes along and says, eat whatever you want to eat. Get married if you want to get married. Only in the Lord. Thank you, Lord. These men, these false teachers didn't teach that. They wanted to make a fair show in the flesh. They wanted to show this emphasis on circumcision. Look at the rites that we're keeping. Look at our ancient fathers kept this right. Our daddies have practiced this for 2,000 years. Step behind the curtain, young man. Hopefully. But do you know why they did it? Lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. 
Paul has already hinted at this in chapter 5. Look back across your page to chapter 5 and verse 11. He knew the difference. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, there are some of you tell it, there are some of you that are saying that I support circumcision just because I circumcised Timothy? Forget it. Brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. If I add circumcision to Jesus Christ, the Jews won't persecute me because I'm going around hacking on Gentiles. And they get so excited. Do you remember Jesus told the Pharisees, you encompass land and sea to make one more proselyte, and after you've made him a proselyte, he's more the child of hell than he was before. Oh, they were zealous missionaries. Very zealous missionaries. But do you know what their mission was? To get a Gentile to subject himself to the Jewish rite of circumcision. And so the Jews would accept Christians, even if they believed in Jesus of Nazareth, as long as they were Gentiles who were all getting circumcised as a requirement to comply with the law of Moses. And so it would take away persecution. But here comes Paul. Everywhere Paul, as soon as Paul would smell in an audience that there were men that were thinking like that, he wouldn't circumcise. Do you remember Titus? From this same epistle, Galatians chapter 2? He had Titus, one of his ministers, who was a Greek and wasn't circumcised. And when he sensed that men were expecting him to circumcise Titus in order for them to have Paul as an excuse for their heresy, no way. Titus remained uncircumcised the rest of his life. Timothy, when he was, when he grew up among some Jews who understood that his father had been a Greek, Timothy he circumcised to make the gospel without offense. But there weren't heretics there trying to teach a false doctrine. What a difference Paul made. But here goes Paul. Jesus Christ and Him crucified, there's nothing to be added to the cross. Grace plus anything equals heresy, is what Paul taught. And they hated Him for it. And they persecuted Him. And he said, these other men that are coming in and teaching in your churches, that are teaching you heresy because they're wimps. They're trying to take away the offense of the cross of Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ suffered. They should be willing to suffer if they love Him at all. I'm willing to suffer just like Him. And before we can get out of this chapter, He's going to say, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had scars on His body because He suffered persecution and so did the Apostle Paul. You can't get beat five times and stoned once and not have a few marks. And Paul had a few. We come to verse 13. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. He goes a little further. I have just accused these men of being hypocrites. I've just accused these men of being sissies. Now let me prove it. These men that are requiring circumcision, they do not keep the law themselves. They've only picked one thing out of that law that they're going to emphasize above everything else in order to get rid of Jewish persecution. You know, the law had 917 commandments. Circumcision is only one. These men pulled circumcision because it was the most important to Jews. And if you were doing that to a Gentile body, they would have let you get away with it. Being a Christian, that is. As long as you were circumcising Gentile men. But see, they weren't keeping the whole law. Paul's already taught us, if you're going to believe that the law is necessary for salvation, then you better keep every rule of it. 
Not just one that's politically expedient and, oh, there's so much in here. You know, if I had a ministerial class in front of me, we'd go over right now about preaching things that are politically expedient. And you don't preach that way. Paul never preached that way. These preachers preached that way. It was politically expedient for them to preach that you needed to be circumcised. And yet, if you looked at their personal lives, they didn't keep the law because they knew the law wasn't for salvation. They did. They preached circumcision in order to save their backsides. For neither they themselves, these teachers who are circumcised, keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. That they can get a denominational following of Gentiles who have been circumcised under the right of the Jews. Even though they're claiming Christ. And so Paul tears these false teachers apart in verses 12 and 13. He rips their motives. You know, men say, men say, well, you can't judge another man's heart. Well, Paul judged other men's hearts by their practice. All you have to do is look close enough and far enough and see what they're doing. He knew that it was for political expediency. And of course, the Lord gave him the discernment of spirits. But it was obvious enough because the proof was in the pudding. They weren't keeping the law to get saved. They had just pulled out something that would get them political mercy from the Jews. Verse 13. This is what Paul had to deal with. For those of you that love our long-departed brother, these men would go along like leeches and come into churches that he had started by his labors and by the grace of the Spirit of God and try to corrupt the converts that he had baptized or had had baptized by others. I'm going to pass over the 14th verse. So far from glorying in the flesh. See verse 13 how it ends? They want to glory in your flesh. The most important thing to them is to have a denomination that cuts off a little bit of skin in a religious rite. They want to build a denominational following of that to glory in your flesh. They're not interested in Jesus Christ. They're not interested in the truth of the gospel. They want to build a group of Gentiles who are acting like Jews when it comes to that piece of skin. But God forbid that I should glory in such ridiculous things. I want you to understand where the word glory came from in verse 14. It's because they gloried in things like circumcision. And you know, there are denominations today, and let me name one, like Presbyterianism, that glories in their infant baptism. It's a heresy in the Bible. But they glory in those services. They glory in having those little children brought and water being applied to them. And it doesn't matter how formal you make the service, it's blasphemy and heresy. The Lord Jesus Christ is not moved by such an application of H2O. If you love Jesus Christ, you would follow His Word. And believers only are baptized in the New Testament. And every believer that's baptized in the New Testament was buried in water. He wasn't sprinkled. It's not because we hate Presbyterians. It's because we hate Presbyterianism. And so Paul hated these Judaizers, and there's no difference. They corrupt the Word of God, and they overthrow the faith of some. Verse 15, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Paul is wrapping up all of his arguments. It doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not about going to heaven. Galatians, it doesn't matter. Do you remember when you read my epistle to the Romans, he says, 
I pointed out to you that Abraham, the great example of the faithful, the father of the faithful, the first man that is said to be justified by faith in the Bible, he was declared to be just before he was circumcised. Romans chapter 4 is powerful on that point. Circumcision doesn't avail a thing. God doesn't care. It's cosmetic surgery. God doesn't care. God doesn't care if your ears are pierced, ladies. And God doesn't care if your man's cut. It doesn't matter when it comes to eternal life. It may matter to you for any number of reasons, but it doesn't matter to God when it comes to eternal life. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. What does matter in Jesus Christ? What matters is that you're a new creature. The religion of Jesus Christ isn't affected by whether you're circumcised or not. New Testament Christianity couldn't care less. But the poor Gentiles of Galatia were having their faith overthrown by these false teachers coming out of Jerusalem. The only circumcision we care about, and there's two of them mentioned in the New Testament. The first one is in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11. It's close by if you want to look at it. It says that we are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now I can tell you something. They haven't automated circumcision yet. It's still made with hands. They don't have a robot yet that'll do that. And for those of you that have watched it, you know that why. It takes a little bit more care and precision than a robot. I expect five. No, no. The circumcision made without hands. What is it? The circumcision of Christ by the cutting off of our sins. Colossians 2.11 The Lord uses that terminology to, to describe cutting off our sins. We all have a sin burden that's attached to us and Jesus Christ died on the cross and legally we had our sins cut off. That's a circumcision that we agree with. That circumcision is necessary for eternal life, but the Bible wants you to know that circumcision wasn't made with a doctor's hands or a midwife's hands. It was made by God Himself. Then there's another circumcision. It's in Romans chapter 2. You can look at it with me. Romans 2. It's a good verse because it will serve us in just a moment. Romans chapter 2. You know, the, the Holy Spirit chooses language that was well understood by the hearers then. In this congregation, they understood all the ramifications and heresies surrounding circumcision. And so when the apostle uses the word circumcision, they know exactly what that means, cutting in a circle and getting rid of extra skin. And here, the apostle is going to use it by the Holy Spirit in a couple of different ways. When Jesus died on the cross, He cut off our sins and they fell away. The circumcision made without hands. Colossians 2.11 Happens to men and women. Every child of God that ends up in heaven has been circumcised in that respect because Jesus paid for their sins. Now Romans 2.28 Romans 2.28 For He is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. How could you tell a Jew? You had to ask Him to take His clothes off. You could tell a Jew in the public baths. For he, but He is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. What you see and what you think is a Jew is not true in the sight of God. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. You know exactly what he's talking about in verse 28. Verse 29, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart 
in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. If you had outward circumcision, it's because you had a father or a midwife or someone that did it for you. But this circumcision is done by God, and it's in verse 29, and it's of the heart. It's having some deadness cut off of your heart to give you a living heart in regeneration and the change of your spirit. This is the true Jew in the sight of God. The true Jew has always been the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, and those in him. And what operation they have is not one outwardly, because that doesn't matter. The operation they have is one in their heart. And they have a legal one of cutting off sins. This is the circumcision we've all had by the grace of God. If God would be gracious to every single one in this assembly. Back to Galatians 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Oh, thank you, Lord, for such instruction. Cutting the old creature. Just think. If I take the old man that's full of death, this body, and I cut the body, how is cutting the dying mortal body, my flesh, going to help me into the spiritual place of heaven? It's foolish to even think that. Cutting the old creature, the flesh, by circumcision is vanity in comparison to a brand new creature. And how do we get the new creature? We are born again by the power of God that gives us a new creature inside. I have a new creature inside and I hope that you do as well. That new creature is my new man. It's been created by the voice, the life-giving voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke life into me and I have a new man inside me. I have a new creation. There's part of me that absolutely, totally, always loves the things of God and hates everything of this world. It is a new creation because I know my old creation as well. It loves all the things of this world and hates the things of heaven. And I'm sorry to tell you about that I'm a schizophrenic freak that way, but if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are as well. But I have a new creature inside me. And it was it was put there by the circumcision of Christ in my heart by His life-giving voice, giving me that new man. And it's that new creature that is described here in verse 15. What matters in Christ Jesus is not whether you've been circumcised or not. It doesn't matter whether you've had a little bit of skin cut in your body. What matters is, are you a new creature? Now, for those of you that can think a little deeper, and I don't mean that, I don't mean that, haughtily or condescendingly to anyone. I am not going to leave that 15th verse just dangling, hangling, hanging there with only a vital application of those words. By vital application, I mean that all Paul intended by a new creature was that you were born again. I'm not going to leave it there. I do not approach the Bible in such a way in order to protect some pet theory that most of the world out there are born again children of God and they just don't know it. If you're a new creature, you're going to have a changed life. That is the general rule of the New Testament. And so when it says a new creature here, I'm going to run it the same way I run a new creature in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If you are truly in Jesus Christ, 
If you have believed on Jesus Christ and you have been baptized in Jesus Christ, you come up out of those waters of baptism with the purpose and intent of walking in newness of life. There is the new life of the new creature. Now, when Paul says it here, he is not just dealing with some vital fact. He is dealing with a vital and a practical evidence that there is a new person evidenced by a changed life. Paul, there isn't. The book of Galatians is not one that settles with a vital concept. The vital phase of salvation. That that I'm just born again and I have this new man in me and I just don't know how to live so I go through life and I live in sin even though I've got a new man in me. That's not what Paul's teaching. Paul has already taught in chapter 5 and verse 25. Listen, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. If we are new creatures, it's going to show up. In the very next verse he says, and as many as walk according to this rule. He's, he's including the walk of a Christian. It's not enough to be born again. We need to walk with that new life as a Christian. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. The important thing, brethren, are you born again? How do you know you're born again? You're living a born again life. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. How are we born? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1.13 But if we're born of God, we hear God's words because it says, Ye hear them not because ye are not of God. John 8.47 A born again man is going to have a changed life. That's what he's already taught here. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. If you're sowing to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, by loving the things of heaven and the things of God, you're going to reap life everlasting. And it's describing what you sow, which is what you do in your walk. It's what you do today. It's what you're doing right now. Are you thinking about your stupid business? Are you thinking about some stupid activity you're going to be engaged in this afternoon? And yes, no matter what you do, unless it's tied to the things of God, it's going to be stupid. Forgive me for stepping on your little play toy. I serve a Savior that's going to crush it and annihilate it and burn it up with fervent heat, and you're going to give an account for wasting one second in doing something when you should have been doing something spiritual. He knows that we have our carnal lives in this world, but He also expects us to put a priority upon the things of heaven. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Oh, brethren, we want to walk in the Spirit, not just live in the Spirit. We want to have a new life that shows that we're born again. How can you know that you're born again? You have a new life. This new creature does new things. This new creature loves the brethren instead of being selfish, lazy, and a loner. And it goes right on down the list of everything that we covered. The new creature hates the 17 works of the flesh in Galatians 5, and it loves the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. And it does those things. It doesn't just say, yeah, you're right. Those 17 are bad and those nine look good. It does them. It does them. Verse 16, as many as walk according to this rule, oh, follow Paul's language. This epistle is almost over. Someone is reading it to the churches of Galatia. And as many as walk according to this rule. What is this rule? Is it the whole Bible to that point? Is it the New Testament to that point? Is it Galatians to that point? 
Or is it the previous verse? Circumcision doesn't avail anything in Christ Jesus, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy. Oh, this is powerful language. You try to imagine that being read in a church service where there are men sitting down here that had taught the previous week that you needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. As many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them. Paul is giving a discriminating blessing upon only those in those assembly, those in the assemblies of the Galatians that denied that circumcision had anything to do with eternal life. He is picking out of these churches the faithful ones who understood the rule of apostolic doctrine. Circumcision doesn't matter. Jesus Christ is everything. Peace be on them. What does that imply about the preachers in the front row? No peace to those men. Do you know what he said in chapter 5? I would they were even cut off that trouble you. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy. And upon the Israel of God. Whoa. Now he really gets harsh. These men were trying to get Gentiles to be circumcised to become outsiders, but still part of national or physical Israel. And so Paul says, the real Israel of God are those that walk according to this rule and love the seed of Abraham. Are, are you, are, is it all coming together for you in a connecting way? The real Israel of God are those who know that they are the seed of Abraham through Jesus Christ only and not by circumcision at all. Those men in the front row who are making such a big deal about God's blessing on the nation of Israel and that they got that by the covenant sign of circumcision, they're out. Didn't he already teach that in chapter 4? That they are related to Hagar and her son Ishmael and cast them out? Oh, Paul is not very politically correct. He is not winning friends and influencing people this day, at least on the front row. But I'll tell you, every one of us that were sitting back there in the other pews, we'd have heard that epistle being read, and we'd have looked around. I hope you wouldn't have had to look. I hope you'd have just punched the air and shouted amen. Amen! Thank God for sending Paul to write an epistle to blast those guys in the front row and save our church from heresy. And he blessed us. The great apostle, the greatest apostle, has given me an apostolic blessing of peace and mercy because I have set my heart only on Jesus Christ and I don't care what those other men are teaching me. Praise the Lord. And as many as walk according to this rule, Peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. He's already taught them in chapter 3. If you've believed on Jesus Christ and been baptized in Jesus Christ, then are ye Christ and your Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Thank you, Lord. From henceforth, he says in verse 17, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I don't want to hear another word out of those guys in the front row. I don't want to hear another word about those guys in the front row. I have just already defended my apostolic office, chapters 1 and 2. I have defended the truth of justification by Jesus Christ alone, chapters 2, 3, and 4. I have taught that a justified man is going to live a holy life, chapter 5. I have explained and said all that needs to be said and explained. If there is any other teaching contrary to what I've taught, I don't care if I do it, Barnabas does it, Peter does it, or an angel from heaven does it, let him be accursed. I am not going to be troubled any further with this heresy. From henceforth, 
Let no man trouble me. This issue is settled and over, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I'm not like those little panty-waisted guys in the front row who've never suffered persecution for the cause of Jesus Christ. Do you want to take a look at my back sometime? Have me in your home when I visit Galatia next time, and you can see my back. It's been opened up several times by the Jews, several times by the Romans, and I've been stoned. Do you know what his body would have looked like, brethren? He was stoned and left for dead. Do you think he might have had a bruise? He makes this appeal. This issue is over. I have given the doctrinal basis for it, the historical basis for it, and I have the reputation that shows me in compatibility with Jesus Christ. I have suffered for the cause of Christ just like he suffered for us. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And he gives his apostolic blessing, without which we can do nothing. If it were not for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. The grace of God through Jesus Christ purchased for us by him is what we need to sustain our spirits. And so Paul says, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would have taken some of those spirits and upheld them and kept them safe from all the false teaching of those false teachers. And it wouldn't have some of the others. And a division was made by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the lives of these believers. May, when that, when that division is made among us, may we find us on the side of truth and the side of Jesus Christ. Back to the best verse in this section, verse 14. Verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 12 and 13, he has described those that are glorying in ritualistic religion of circumcision. They get their thrills out of building a denomination based on ritual. The Roman Catholic Church is a religion, and I'm using it as an example. As an example, the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic, Roman Catholicism, is a ritualistic religion that takes all of its glory in the flesh. The fancy buildings, the fancy robes, the incense, the fancy ceremonies, all of it ad nauseum is ritualistic and formal religion without truly loving the Lord Jesus Christ. When they come to pray, they pray ten Hail Marys to every one, our Father. Does that tell you how ritualistic it is? Mary gets ten times the prayers of God our Father. It's ritualism. And we hate ritualism. We're Baptists. We're Baptists saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But God forbid that I should glory in anything save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word save right there means He didn't glory in anything but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't glory just in Jesus Christ. He gloried in Jesus Christ's death for His sins. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the love of Christ constraineth us. He said, I am bound up, tightened up, and strictly pushed in one direction direction by the love of Jesus Christ for me. Because I thus judge. This is the way I reason about the whole thing. That one died for all. If one died for all, then that means all were dead and doomed to death. But that He died for all, they which live of those He died for, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him who loved them and died for them. That's how He reasoned. That's how you ought to reason this morning. God forbid the strongest negative the Bible knows. It's not enough to say no. God forbid that I should glory 
in anything but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I fear that there are some, prayerfully, not many, that are glorying in other things rather than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. God forbid that we should ever get excited, that we should ever be happy, that we should ever rejoice about anything in comparison to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The strongest negative the Bible can give is that we should not do so. I began this morning by quoting from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, reading it to you, where Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That gospel will, will prove to be a savour of death unto death among those that are not born again or not the elect of God. And it will be a savour of life unto life of those that are redeemed because they love to hear about their Savior who died for them, who put away their sins, who suffered the judgment and wrath of God so that they could have everlasting life. Brethren, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul had more to glory about than anyone in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul had a better Jewish pedigree than anyone else in the New Testament. I mean, think about it. Peter was a dumb fisherman. Peter was an uneducated fisherman. Peter was an ignorant fisherman. Whenever he opened his mouth, they knew that. Paul was seminary trained by the Jews themselves. And when he lists his pedigree in 2 Corinthians 11, he lists his resume in Philippians chapter 3. He says, they want to compare themselves to me. Look at what I had in the Jews' religion. I counted it all dung for the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He didn't glory in anything, not even in the Jews' religion. God raised up this special man that had many qualifications and he counted everything that he'd ever accomplished to be dung. He counted a total loss, a wipeout for the knowledge of Christ Jesus as Lord. And he ran the Roman world wild. He preached to all men. He, he could say of Asia Minor, the great province of the Roman Empire, he could say all men have heard about the truth by my mouth. He said it in Acts chapter 20. I am free from the blood of all men because he didn't glory in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I have four questions for you from this text. This is the best verse in the chapter. This is the best verse in the book, but now you're getting a little prejudiced opinion. It's maybe the best verse in the New Testament. Do you have favorite verses? This ought to be one of them. But God forbid that I should ever glory in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not glorying in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, either you are not born again or you have forgotten that you were purged from your old sins. Right. Two only options. Question. Do you glory in the religion of Jesus Christ? Is this the source and object of your fullest joy? When the Bible says, Delight thyself also in me, that was the Lord Jehovah of the Old Testament speaking. But the Lord Jehovah of the New Testament speaking would say, that's delighting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you truly delight in the Lord Jesus Christ? He said, let not the mighty man glory in his strength, the wise man in his wisdom, or the rich man in his riches. But let him glory that he knows and understands me. The fullest revelation God ever gave of himself is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you glory in the cross of the Lord. Do you glory in the Lord Jesus Christ? I'll get to the cross in a second. 
Do you have any comprehension of how great the religion is of Jesus Christ? You know the only true and living God and how He came to earth 2,000 years ago to die a substitutionary death for His people. You know where He is right now, the blessed and only potentate forever. You know the cause of death, the source of death, the cure for death, and the place of no death because of Him who died for you. You know there's an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. And what does that inheritance include? God Himself. So I ask you the first question, do you glory in the religion of Jesus Christ? Is it the consuming passion in your life? Second question, do you glory in the cross of Jesus Christ? Paul didn't say, God forbid that I should glory, save in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. His focus was upon that death. It's not the piece of wood. There is absolutely no value to a crucifix on any wall at any time or anywhere. And those little girls that wear a cross around their neck and considered a piece of jewelry are effeminate to begin with and they're blasphemous secondarily because the little piece of wood or the piece of silver around your neck doesn't have a thing to do with the religion of Jesus Christ. When it says the cross of Christ, it doesn't mean that we need to have a cross imprinted on anything or anywhere. It doesn't need to be on our key ring It means that we need to remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all that's meant by that word. That's why we don't sing very often the old rugged cross. Because we don't get hung up on a piece of wood sticking on some hilltop. We focus entirely on what Jesus did on that cross, and that was to die for us. Do you glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. Is His death and resurrection a great joy to you? Do you look forward to the Lord's Supper? Because that's the time we get to remember the most special thing of our religion. Does His death for you constrain you like it constrained Paul to live for Him? Are you delighted that it's by the obedience of one that you were made righteous? His obedience in going to the death of the cross. Do you glory in a gospel of free grace? Do you delight in remembering every aspect of what He went through on the cross? The physical elements, which were the simplest. The non-physical elements. The emotional, the mental of knowing what was coming. The spiritual elements of having the devil attacking Him. The element of separation from God for our sins. Do you delight in thinking about all that Jesus Christ did for you on the cross? Do you glory in the cross of Jesus Christ? Or is Paul strange to you? Lord, save us. Let us be just like Him. Third question. Is the world crucified to you? See, this verse says a lot, and it's why I like it so much. It says, God forbid that I should glory, saving the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom? See, he's not talking about a block of wood. We don't wear a cross. You know, some, the ones that really want to show they're effeminate wear it on a cross outside their clothes. And they go around with this thing dangling on a chain, a cross. See, it's not, it doesn't say in Galatians 6.14, by which the world is crucified unto me, because it's the whom. It's the one that hung on that cross. 
by whom the world is crucified unto me. The Apostle Paul loved Jesus Christ so much that because this world hates Jesus Christ and the things he stands for, he considered the whole world a dead system to him. He didn't have any interest in anything about them. Their philosophy, their entertainment, their fads, their lifestyles, their thinking, their education, all of it was dead to him. By whom the world is crucified unto me. None of it interests me at all because of the glory of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that world that killed Him. It's that world that hates Him. It's that world that hates me preaching about Him. They're all dead to me. Is the world dead to you because you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you despise and hate all that's in the world? If you're a friend of the world, you're the enemy of God. James 4.4 You cannot serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other, or you'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Matthew 6.24 Paul was single-minded. He had one heart for one goal. One thing was important to him. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew that this world would crucify Jesus again if he came back. So he hated them. He had nothing to do with this world. He hated the world system. And he avoided it. He did not let it creep in and affect his thinking. Affect his speech. Affect his... He didn't have children. But if he had had children, he wouldn't have let... The world affect his children, which is what we consider in the second service. Could you die for Jesus Christ? We have many ancestors that died for him. But better yet, can you live for him today? Can you live for him today by dying to yourself? By crucifying the world in order to live for him? If you were to lose everything, but you still had Jesus Christ and and your knowledge of him being crucified, could you be happy and content? Thank you. You should be able to be happy and content if you were to lose everything else. Many of our ancestors lost everything else. But they had Jesus Christ and they saw Him seated at the right hand of God and they couldn't wait to be there with Him. They knew that He had died for them. They were willing to die for Him. Can we live for Him by living a life of self-denial? Fourth question. Do you prove that you're crucified to the world? Look at what this verse says. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. The world considers me dead. The world considers me such an anomaly, such a crazy man, such a fanatic, that they hate me and despise everything about me. I ask you the fourth question. Do you live in such a way that you prove that you are crucified to the world? Does the world consider you an oddball? Let me tell you something. The Bible says this, especially about the generation we live in in 2 Timothy 3.12. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you're living godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. Does your life prove that the world, that you are crucified to the world? Does your life prove it? Do they recognize that you are different by your character, your conduct, your clothing, your speech? Your actions, your philosophy, your attitude, are all of those things different so that you are crucified to the world. They think that you are odd and strange. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4, and that verse is going to be learned by some of you, they're going to think you strange because you don't run to the same excess of riot with them that they run. Are you crucified to the world? How many enemies do you have for the sake of Jesus Christ alone? and not for any fault of your own. 
if you have enemies because you are cruel, harsh, stupid, don't pay your debts, or for any other reason, that's your fault. That's not what I'm asking. You are no martyr if you have enemies because you've irritated and offended people. My question is, how many enemies do you have because of your stand for the religion of Jesus Christ? That shows if you are crucified to the world. A glorious Savior died under glorious circumstances, out of glorious love, after a glorious life of righteousness, after a glorious testimony before Pilate, with glorious mercy to sinners, for the glorious purpose of redeeming His elect, and rose gloriously from the dead to the right hand of God Almighty, where He reigns gloriously, reserving a glorious inheritance for you. What keeps you from glorying? What will you glory in, brethren? Your looks? They're fading every day. Your accomplishments? They're nothing at all. Your wealth? You're not going to take a penny with you. Your thoughts? Most of them are deceitful delusions. Your friends? Cannot help you. Your strength? It's nothing to start with, and it's quickly disappearing. Your wisdom? It's folly in His sight. Your religious devotion, most religious people are going to be consigned to hell. I never knew you. Your knowledge, it's void of truth by nature. Your future, you can't even boast about tomorrow. What are you going to glory in? There's nothing left. This life is hopeless and it is vain, except for one thing, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's breathe it. Let's live it, let's talk about it, let's preach it, let's love it, hearing it, let's sing about it.